Hi everyone, and welcome to Kopi and Song. I am Sridhar, one of the Aubrey People's co-founders, and I'm really excited to welcome you to this episode of our Kopi and Song podcast series. Kopi and Song is a series that introduces some of the personalities in the local classical, vocal, and opera scene. In today's episode, Maestro from the Top Please, we speak with one of our frequent collaborators and one of the most prolific young conductors on the concert and operatic stage in Singapore, Yen Bunhua. A prize winner of numerous competitions, Yen Bunhua is the artistic director of the Wayfarer Sinfonietta and leads Opus Novus, the contemporary music ensemble at the Yang Siu To Conservatory of Music in Singapore. He was featured in the 2019-2020 Peter Edvosch Foundation Mentoring Programme and was appointed assistant conductor of the Polish National Radio Symphony Orchestra in Katowice from 2016 to 2018. Welcome to Kopi and Song, Bunhua. Hi, Srida. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the show. So I think between the two of us, we have spent a lot of time talking about music. So I wanted to ask you to, to begin with if there was a moment in your life in which you knew that music was the, the path for you and, and how that journey really began. Well, there really isn't an uh, inspirational mala as a child story I wish I had. You know, like a lot of conductors like to say, you know, my mom brought me to a concert when I was four years old and I heard Mahler 4 and, and there was a boy soprano and at that moment I knew I wanted to be a conductor. Um, I kind of approached music kind of in, in a gradual way. Uh, it was something that I, I had an interest in and eventually when the more I got into it, the more I fell in love with it and then eventually it became my calling. Um but uh, kind of, there's kind of a funny story when I was in high school, uh, and this is a funny story together with David, um, that we were in the MEP class, and it was a very, uh, it was a very cutthroat MEP class because I remember the class started out with like twelve people, and then eventually it was like battle royale, and one of each one of us got eventually eliminated until there was three standing to take the A-levels. So I remember um, both David and I were the first to to get um, unceremon unceremoniously released. Um, we had the talk in the canteen, in the school canteen, the teacher said, Punhua, we need to talk to you. Well, based on your progress, uh, I don't really see you getting an A for the class, not even a B. Maybe a C. I think we should reconsider taking this class. <laughs> and so, and so, yeah. So I dropped it, and I'm sure, yeah. David had the same talk as well. And the funny thing is, both of us are still uh, professional musicians to today. And um, I, I think this story. Uh, I I don't remember this story with any anger, or it's just a funny story. Uh, because you know, now as an educator, I also realize it's it's so difficult. Um, the music career is it's very difficult, and and uh grueling uh, career path so at the same time you want to give inspiration to your students but you also want them to be realistic and I, I realized at that point uh, I didn't have musical background so I kind of started my musical um, my my endeavor into music from uh, playing brass band when I was in primary school and so I didn't really have kind of formal piano training and uh, all these things came much later uh, so I in some ways I wasn't really set up for, for success, but uh, I kind of hustled my way through many years through school and eventually uh, here I am. Okay. Actually, that's an interesting interesting point because like I think um, even for myself, like I my formal music training actually is um, not not something I started from a very young age. Um, it started with again with like singing in choir, then taking voice lessons, then then going to watch operas and stuff. So I, I wonder if like actually coming to the formal training at a later part of your life actually helps because like there's a certain sense of 
maturity that you already have. So it feels less like a chore and there's more of this sense of discovery and wonderment in it. I don't know if you feel the same way about it. I think that's an interesting, um, that's an interesting perspective. I do feel that way, but at the same time, I remember when I was in, uh, in college and looking at a lot of my colleagues with a lot of envy because they went through kind of the music middle school program. And so, you know, everybody had perfect pitch and then the teacher could go on the piano and then just play a cluster and they're like, oh, this is the way be so lassie. C flat, <laughs> and 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 I always wish I had that skill. And I um so on on some level, um it is a it is a good thing that you're approaching music from at the later stage because you do it with passion, and um I I suppose the really successful successful musicians are those that had a combination of both. Right, they started off at an early age, so they had some advantage, but at the same time they always kept that wonder. They always kept why they they do music in the first place. Um, that sense of inspiration. And how did you end up sort of moving into conducting? Because actually your your undergraduate was in, in trombone, right? Yeah, trombone performance. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I remember distinctively when I was in school, um, being very happy sitting in the trombone section in the orchestra. I mean, I've always loved orchestra music and that was in, in some ways kind of the gateway drug to, to uh, all, all the music that I do today. Uh, as an instrumentalist, I love playing with the orchestra. I love this sense of, you know, the whole orchestra is functioning as one body. And, um, and I remember there was one point, maybe in my first or second year, sitting at the back of the orchestra and just really loving the vibe. You know, in the low brass section, there is this very, very chill vibe and everybody works together very nicely. Everybody gets along and it's it's about having fun because um, low brass parts in orchestra scores are either um, moments of, of great triumph or, you know, this is the artillery of the orchestra. You know, you bring out the big guns or some moments of, of pure... Um, uh, a quiet and beauty. And other times you're just sitting around not doing anything, mm. counting rest, which which is a lot of fun. And I, I remember really loving that. And at some point, uh, I got into chamber music. I did a brass quintet and it was a lot of fun. Uh, but I realized I was kind of the, the person that was always rehearsing the group. I was always the person that had ideas and suggesting stuff. And eventually that kind of led me to, uh, to conducting from a, a way of trying to organize or trying to put different thoughts together to come up with a musical product. Um, so I actually entered conducting quite late. Uh, I believe it was my third and fourth year in, in college that I decided maybe this is something that I've, I have some interest in. Again, I, I've always approached uh, music with a bit of caution, um, not because I, I think it's mainly like this is self-doubt, or like this imposter syndrome, am I really for this? And, uh, and you know, one step led to the other. So when I uh, did auditions for grad school, you know, I did five or six trombone auditions in the US and I did three conducting auditions in, uh, con uh, in, in the States when I was doing a grad school audition tour. And I got into all three conducting schools and I only my hit rate for the trombone schools was like 50%. <laughs> so I thought, hmm, this is interesting. And uh, and eventually, I kind of landed, you know, myself in conducting. I thought, okay, let's let's see how this goes. And at that point, my... Um, I didn't really have, you know, very wild dreams. Uh, but I thought, you know, maybe this is a good way to uh, maybe conduct bands, school bands and stuff. This could be, you know 
my way in. Um, but eventually, the, the deeper I get into it and um, getting encouragement from different people, that really set my mind. You know, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna pursue this as far as I can. I think that's the the turning point for me was really there was this masterclass in Lutzen with Bernard Haitink, and uh, I was selected as one of the. Um, I think they invited maybe 20 people to come to the, to the audition. So what happens in the masterclass is that um, think will audition everybody, 20 people, and he will pick seven active participants. So these seven people will conduct orchestra you know, every day and, and have personal coaching with him. Um, and so I remember looking at the name list of the 20 people and it's like, oh my God, this guy, he just won a competition. This guy just, this guy is an assistant in some professional orchestra. And I was just, uh, I was just finishing school at Eastman. So I thought, oh my gosh, you know, it, it, was, it was a great honor to be there anyway. So let's just try and see what happens. And I was so nervous meeting Haiting for the first time. I was like, oh my God, this is, this is the great brother Haiting. And, um, and eventually he picked me. So for the masterclass, which I was really glad because I got to like, you know, these, my, my, all these classmates are just, you know, absolutely fantastic. Um, it was at the end of the masterclass that, that he, he, we're supposed to do Bruckner Six Symphony. And um, so I was supposed to do the second movement and a colleague of mine was supposed to do the first movement. And uh, I was I was the penultimate person and she she ended the whole thing. And just at the last minute, he, he switched both of us. So can you do the first movement? I was like, oh, this is completely okay. I'll, I'll, let me try to do my best. And uh, I didn't understand why. So so I finished the, the class um, and there was the, there was an audience there, and he gave an address after that, and you know we were on our way. Um, then I remember meeting him again the next year when he was in Boston conducting Boston Symphony. So I wanted to just go in and and watch rehearsals and spoke to him. And I remember asking him about that, and then he said something to me, um, that well I I put you at the end because I knew you would do a good job, and and that to me was like oh my gosh. It, it was it was that kind of you know pat on the back encouragement that I really needed and I felt like you know what I could do this I can really do this I I mean again you know going back to the the self doubt thing you know when I saw the audition uh, auditionees and the other people I thought oh my gosh this 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 crowd is tough <laughs> how am I gonna get in um but I did and and I did well. And that is already a, a big boost of confidence. So when, when he told me that, then that in some way set my mind that, you know, I, I am cut out for this. I can do this. And that gave me the confidence to just pursue. And then after that, you know, I, I won my position in Poland and started to work professionally. And it's been a, it's been a fun ride. And maybe you can tell me a little bit about how it was conducting an orchestra in Poland. How did that come about? And what was it like sort of working with a, a very sort of repertory orchestra that, that really does a, a full season of concerts? Yeah, it, it was actually very fun. It's also all um, all by coincidence. So I was in uh, Armenia. I was in Yerevan for a conducting competition. Um, and it was interesting because they put us up in, in pairs in hotel room. So I was paired together with a Korean, uh, Korean guy and, uh, we never met each other. So they, they will pair us up, but they paid for accommodation. So it was fantastic. So I got along really, really well with, with this friend and, um, and he was studying in Munich at that point. And the, t the teacher, his teacher at Munich was actually the chief conductor of the Polish National Radio Symphony Orchestra. Um, and so he told me, Hey, do you know about this audition that's happening in, in Poland? 
uh, my, my teacher is the chief conductor and he's great. You should really check it out. So I did. Um, and, and somehow I won the position, uh, because he told me about it. And cause I saw the notice somewhere online, but I wasn't quite sure. Um, and the funny thing is, I remember when I went to the audition, I thought my goal, my singular goal was just to get to the finals, get an invitation to conduct the orchestra at some point and be happy. That's, that's totally fine because it's the Polish National Radio Symphony Orchestra. It's, you know, I, I'm sure they are looking for somebody, you know, <laughs> of a certain nationality. So I thought, okay, I'll just give it a shot, see what happens. So, um, and at that point, also, I was going to uh, study in Berlin. So I got a place in the school in Berlin. So I thought when I was looking for an apartment in Berlin, I, I took a bus to do the audition in Poland and somehow I won the position. And then I decided, you know, should I go to school or should I start working? And I thought, that's pretty obvious. <laughs> so I did. I started working and uh, conducting a, an orchestra like that is it's it's really um a dream come true because we had a fantastic new hall it was just built you know 3 or 4 years when i got the job one of the best halls i would say with no no doubt in in europe and um and i mean this orchestra has been it's like one of the two so in poland there are two national orchestras and one national opera so the the warsaw philharmonic it, obviously, you know, we all know that orchestra. And within the country, it's called National Philharmonic. So um, the other national orchestra that has, because national is is not a, a name that they just throw around. There are only two orchestras with that title. It's the radio orchestra in Katowice. And, um, and you know, we had a, a fantastic roster of soloists. We had a fantastic roster of uh, conductors coming through. And uh, even though my job as an assistant is... Um, quite in some ways quite free and flexible so i i only had a certain number of concerts that i need to to cover um but because it was a uh, kind of flexible so i wanted to spend as much time as i can there and uh, and really learning learning from you know my colleagues and b being in rehearsals almost all the time um and and seeing how an established and you know uh, an orchestra with such a long-standing history um as well as you know, putting out so many Naxos recordings in the eighties and nineties. I mean, they basically recorded like full Tchaikovsky cycles, full Mahler cycles, whatever, and um, and just learning from the sound, learning from the hall, learning from my colleagues like the sound engineer, and um, and it was just it was just a blast because working day in and day out, you know, every day morning going to rehearsals with a score in hand and you know having guest conductors coming in and 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 essentially an assistant conductor's job is one of the best jobs because you get you get paid to learn you just you get paid to sit there learn and take in everything and uh, and those two years were the best education that you know one can hope for um since coming back you've kind of actually shifted gears quite a bit and you you definitely do a lot more opera here right then then i guess than you have previously in in Poland, is yeah. am I correct to say that? So um, maybe you can speak a little bit about how um, how you approach and and conducting an opera as opposed to conducting a a, a symphonic work. Mm. Um, so when I was in Poland, they actually did uh, a few semi stage productions. So we did Salome, we did Rick's Progress. Uh, I think we did Don Giovanni during the time I was there. Um, but my my interest in opera actually goes a little bit uh, further earlier. Uh, my teacher 
at Eastman, um, he used to be a repetitor in the German uh, opera houses. So he really knew the rap very well and we had opera classes with him you know, occasionally. But, but those classes were, were always very inspirational because he knew how the human voice work. You hear a voice and you know exactly, do I need to push the tempo or do I you know, let, her, let him or her sing and, and, and revel in this beauty? And, um, and, coming, and, and learning about opera conducting has been, I think the most interesting thing is uh, doing it because my teacher taught me a lot of things. But at that point, I remembered, like, why, why do I do this? I'm not quite sure. And it's only when you're doing it that you realize, oh my gosh, thank God for him to, to teach me these little tricks that, that really saved my life. Um, the difference between symphonic conducting and opera conducting is, uh, in some ways, it's same thing but different. Uh, I, I like to quote uh, the great Carlos Kleiber, which is a, a fantastic, you know, he's the conductor that all conductors want to be. He is like the god of conducting in some ways. And and a lot of people would agree wholeheartedly. And he there was a there's an American student who wrote to Carlos Kleiber, uh, you know, back in the day where it's you know pen and pen and letter. And Carlos Kleiber uh miraculously replied to him, sent him a letter back and say, uh, if you want to be a better conductor, you you need to do opera. Uh, and once you are able to conduct opera, conducting symphonic pieces is easy. And that's an advice I, I truly believe because opera has so many challenges. Um, so many things can go wrong too, right? <laughs> because, you know, the, the singers might be doing a handstand somewhere and then you have to, you know, cue the person in. There's so many moving parts in opera, whereas the symphony orchestra, you know, it's just in front of you, you rehearse for five days, everybody understands, you know, how these things are. And most of the, when you go on to a concert, like 95% of the work is done. And everybody knows what, what they do, what that what they should do. And, um, and the last five percent is really inspiration. You know what happens in the concert. There's a special vibe. So, so in a way, it's it's much safer. Of course, they're very very tricky pieces in the orchestral repertoire, but with with opera, there are just um, so many things that can happen. There are so many. Um, what do you call that? It's never the same because the human voice doesn't work the same every day. It can be the most consistent singer, but you know. Someday you might need more time. Someday you feel really great and or someday you, you don't feel so great. And and it really takes a very sensitive accompanist to, to pick the, these up and kind of to guide the orchestra. So in many ways, um, conducting opera is definitely a lot more challenging uh, because the attentiveness is, is you know, up 200%. Uh, um, not to say symphony, conducting a symphony orchestra is easy, but... But in some ways, it's more settled. It's more settled. Not every night is a new, it's a new challenge. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Um. Because uh, a lot of the older conductors actually, a lot of the sort of their professional route actually started out by being repetitors in in opera houses. Like they would accompany singers in rehearsals. Then from there, they progressed to being like conductors in the pit, and then they transitioned to being sort of symphonic conductors because that was sort of like the route you took, right? Because once you can con accompany and conduct singers, actually you can do everything already. Yeah, it is quite challenging. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, 
it, I remember uh, also in in this this book, uh, which was written by the American student who wrote to uh, Carlos Kleiber, um, there was also this biography of of Carlos Kleiber. He also went the same route. You know, he started off in the opera house as a pianist, um, but he was not a particularly good pianist. So the funny story is like when people walk past his office and they like oh they hear wrong notes, they're like oh I think Carlos is in today. <laughs> but, yeah, I think that this this kind of a traditional German route of being a conductor. To be a conductor, you have to start from the opera house because that's where you learn the craft. So uh, when you ask me about how I approach um, an opera score, uh, I think I approach it very much the same way as I would approach a symphonic score. But with an additional thing, I remember taking a class when I was in uh, my master's with um, with the opera teacher in my school. Um, and he, he made us learn opera the right way. Uh, he made us learn the text learn how to speak the text, write out the text by hand. So like, you know, all the all the stuff that we have done, you know, you, you write out the text in the original language and each time you write it, you speak it and then you translate the text by yourself, not not using a Google Translate because that will not be accurate. You have to know each and every word, what they mean and uh, whether this is a conjunction or whether this is, you know, uh, um, whatever that is. And then after that, you must be able to sing text yourself. And from there, then you learn about, oh, actually, this is a good place to breathe. Or maybe this is a nice place to breathe. Oh, what what are the challenges of doing that? Oh, this interval is funny or this rhythm, it can be a little bit uh, tricky. And then after that, you kind of start doing homework and you listen to so many different recordings to hear, is there a tradition um, that's different from the score? Uh, so there's a lot of uh, back-end work then this is in addition to how you do your score study. But I think this understanding of the text gives it so much more meaning and so much more, um, like you really enjoy the poetry in it. You really enjoy, especially in the songs that, that we are doing uh, for this uh, upcoming project, that that you, you, you revel in the beauty of not just the music, but also in the text. And you understand why did the composer do, you know, write certain things because it's it's so obvious Maybe I'll talk about two of the projects that we've worked on with the opera people. So we did Idomeneo first, which has a you know interesting pandemic story because it was meant to be a full production, then the pandemic happened, and then we converted it to a film. So and in the film we could only do it with with piano because of the restrictions. So in the end you kind of conducted singers with a piano. Maybe like what was that what was that like? And and how how did you find that experience like working with um a really good group of singers, but having to do this with uh, with with the piano, um, actually conducting piano and doing opera, like doing opera scenes in a school, um, conducting just piano is a very uh, common form of training. Um, obviously, you know because of the restrictions back in the this was 20, 2020, yeah, was difficult. But you know, it was so great to have a wonderful cast of singers and also a absolutely amazing pianist. And um, I didn't really think of it. As any different than you know conducting an orchestra, but it was just a more intimate kind of way of making music, a more chamber, and in some ways I don't see uh, a conductor's role as dictating how things should be. Of course, there's there's some place, there's some instances where that is needed, but I think uh, this form of leadership that I'm I'm aspiring to is a little bit more. Um, giving people space to do their thing, uh, but at the same time, you are still coordinating kind of the general picture and making sure that everything kind of flows um, seamlessly from one to another and everybody has kind of the same approach to style. Yeah, I think um, that was a really, I think that was really important in the project is that because everybody comes in having studied the music quite differently. So in some way, in, in this case, especially without an orchestra, actually it's really about lining everybody up stylistically um, in terms of their approach to it so that 
even though it's just with one instrument, it still feels like a very complete whole, um, which I think was really sort of the case for, for this project. I think when we finally listened to it, like it just sounded so tight, you know, and, and everybody sounded so, so fantastic in, in it. It's still one of those, one of the projects that although the, you know, because it was online and, um, it was already kind of at the point in 2020 where things were starting to ease up and we thought, things would be better. Um, like the, the viewership wasn't huge, but I think it was a project that we were very proud of because like nobody had really done like a film opera in Singapore before. And right. putting that together was very challenging, but I think it was a very rewarding experience as well. Absolutely. Um, maybe if we then swap gears to uh, Penelope, which we did at the beginning of this year, mm-hmm. um, that was quite a different work because actually it was a kind of a hybrid, right? We took two pieces that had nothing to do with each other and put them together to kind of tell one story um, one of which is a very sort of um, well-known symphonic song cycle, which is Britain's Les Illuminations, and the other was essentially the 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 international premiere of a of a work by Andre Previn, which was his last completed cantata, Penelope, um, which is actually for a, a small ensemble, just a piano quintet. Uh, maybe you can talk about how um, before we came to rehearsal, how you sort of looked at the score, um, knowing that Edith had sort of pieced everything and and piece everything together to make sense for our version of it. Right. I think I approached the score initially as two separate pieces. Um, So you kind of learn, you know, the the text and you learn what the music is about. Um, I I think, you know, I really give a lot of credit to Edith's kind of um, just simply genius way of of piecing it dramatically together and, you know, how one thing flows to another so, um, so effortlessly and in in creating it, it, it really one piece illuminates the other, and giving the the um, giving the Previn a lot more um, you know little episodes where there's a, a full sung kind of uh, a fully sung kind of um, fleshed out backstory to it, which I think was really fantastic. Yeah, it was nice because there was like a alter like the Britain became this alter ego yeah, to the Penelope, um, and and so like even though and I think what was the, the great thing about the Britain is that the poetry by Amo is so like kind of fantastical that it ha- it can take on like sort of any shape that you kind of want it within certain contexts. Right. Um, but then somehow it just seemed to fit into the Previn like like so well that it's almost hard to to imagine that these two pieces were written like 50 years apart from each other and have nothing to do with each right. other at all, right? I think it's it's really beautiful that we create a dialogue between two pieces or even between two composers, and uh, I, I, that's what some that's an aspect of of programming that I find particularly beautiful these days. Um, that you know, you guys in the TOP it, are doing such such wonderful ideas, and uh, and I think that's that's really really exciting. I think this is a good segue then into talking about the ensemble, which um, accompanied the show, Wayfarer Sinfonietta, which you started in September last year. And the first show, The Unknown Woman, was um, also one of these kind of hybrid shows where we brought together a whole bunch of different pieces that um, individually had nothing to do with each other other mm-hmm. than the fact that they were all connected to one one person, Alma Mahler, um, and, and the Mahler family. Right. Um, but what was what was that like? And and maybe you can also speak about how this orchestra came about and what that sort of means to you in in a Singapore context. Sure, maybe I can talk about that first. Um, 
for, for many years, a lot of people have been asking me, you know, why don't you set up your own ensemble? And I've always been very hesitant. Maybe it's like this perfectionist streak in me that I always feel like, well, if I, if I want to do it, then I have to do it right. And I have to make sure that, you know, this will go on for X number of years. And, uh, and perhaps in the last two years, maybe because of the pandemic, um, so, you know, we were all stuck at home and I started to be a lot more interested in this kind of entrepreneurial spirit. And there are a lot of, you know, internet entrepreneurial gurus and, and, and suddenly I changed my mindset from being um, everything has to be perfect to, well, done is better than perfect. And and I think that's a really important uh, mind uh, shift in, in, in my perception. And so I, instead of just, you know, waiting for an opportunity, uh, of course, you, you do the work to, to make these opportunities happen, then why don't I, you know, just get on my feet and actually create these opportunities for myself. And and in some ways, that was actually the best thing I've done in the, in the past two years um, because I could make music on my terms. And not just that, I could, I have a, a, a vehicle to, to achieve certain musical visions that perhaps hasn't been done yet. And I think that's, that's really um, a beautiful thing because... You never know. I mean, the thing with art is that things could, could be great or could fail and you never know until you present it. And and it was getting past that fear of what if this is not going to fly? Um, that actually, you know, the, the hardship that, you know, the, all the hard work that you put into creating a, a, a project and, and on the day itself when, you know, I mean, we did The Unknown Woman and it had such a, uh, 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 rapturous, you know, reception. Like the audience really loved it. And I remember you told me when I was doing that show, um, we had three or four curtain calls, and you're like, "Well, oh, this is quite rare." And, um, and and in that moment, I, I don't know if it's kind of a, an acknowledgement from the from the audience, but it, it just made everything worth it. You know, all the hard work. And in some ways, art is so so fragile in that sense, right? So kind of going back to this thing about about trusting yourself and believing that, you know, I think this is something that, um, you know, piecing together music that I love uh, tremendously and and believing in the collaborators that came together to to help me create this artistic, you know, vision of how we can link all these these pieces up because there's a, a common thread. Um, that came together, yeah, just wonderfully. And I think the idea about, working with working with good musicians that I love and respect and and having that um that kind of working environment where it's you know conducting a big or symphony orchestra it's a very different experience from conducting a small group because in a big symphony orchestra you have to make decisions and you have to make it from a um you have to make executive calls uh, because a group of 80 and 100 would not there was not enough space for discussion. You know, you just have to say, "This is how we're going to do it." And let's let's do it. But when you have only seven or ten people, then you know it it is it is kind of a hybrid between a big symphony orchestra and a smaller chamber group. And and I don't see myself as a conductor in terms of dictating how things are. But again, like I said, creating an atmosphere that you know a lot of things can happen. Um, so so piecing together the group was. The artistic quality of the artistic standard of the group was was very important to me, 
um, and and this is how in some ways the group was formed because I, I thought okay this project is really um, how, how would it be if we wanted to play all these big symphonic pieces arranged for smaller chamber group uh, to create this kind of atmosphere and put it together in a concert and um, again I didn't know if it's going to be a success or if it's going to fail terribly I just kind of did it and like I said, done is better than perfect. And, and it was actually a really rewarding experience. So from there, then, you know, um, there was more projects that came in. So eventually the, the, the small Sinfonietta group kind of expanded into a string orchestra for the Penelope project and then eventually evolved into a chamber orchestra. And then I started to realize, wow, actually this group has so much flexibility and we could do so many different styles. So instead of symphonic music, um, one other project we did earlier in March was a recording project where we played um, music that that uh, it, um, of a completely different style, jazz, and uh, and that was there was also a mind blowing experience. So with the group, one thing that I always had in mind is that all the projects that we have done, there is a there is a challenge to be overcome. There is something impossible about the project, but if we can do it, then that there is so much satisfaction because you you have over you have you know climbed a mountain. Yeah, actually, it's funny. Um, you mentioned do, um, do is better than not done, right? But um, so even in twenty eighteen, when we started the opera people, actually, it was really just like, um, I mean, we had been talking for a long time, and we were always like planning like, oh, twenty nineteen, twenty nineteen, and then David was like, if we keep talking about next year, we're never gonna do anything. So let's just do something this year. <laughs> so maybe getting thrown out of the MEB class was like the best right, thing to right. happen to both <laughs> of you. <laughs> Um and uh there's a we have an upcoming concert next week. Um I think by the time our listeners actually listen to this podcast it'll be over. Oh no. <laughs> um but um maybe uh you can share a little bit about that program because it's actually quite a quite a special um coming together of of pieces. Right. So like for the for the unknown woman we we pieced together pieces by uh, Busoni, Amma Mahler, Gustav Mahler, Zemlinsky and Eric Conko. So um and this particular concert we pieced together pieces by Atom Weben, Alban Berg and uh, Richard Strauss. So there's, there's something about the Germanic turn of the century repertoire that is very very close to my heart. Um for this upcoming concert Lost Dreams uh we we found a way to combine early pieces by so-called modernist composers from the second Viennese school, uh, which which was really kind of at the forefront of the early 20th century, and the late works of, a, of a, uh, an older composer at the end of his life, uh, which, I mean, it's just exquisite and, and just in incredible in its beauty. Um, and and I, I don't know if, if I've mentioned, but I was also the assistant conductor of the Strauss Festival uh, in 2018, where it was held in Garmisch Partenkirchen, uh, which is south of Munich. And we got I got to visit um, Richard Strauss's house, and it, it was just such a magical experience. Like you know, being here, being breathing this air, and um, and somehow understanding you know where all this beauty came from. I'm going to segue from there into talking about music because um, you mentioned Strauss and uh, this program has quite a bit of music by Strauss and he's kind of been, because of the rehearsals of this, he's like sort of like pervaded my consciousness quite a bit in the last few weeks. <laughs> so, um, but I think we both have been briefly talked about sort of our, our love for Strauss, Strauss's music. Um, and also like, I think the thing I've always found very fascinating, like, you know, 
people always ask this question like, oh, if you could meet one person historical who's dead, like who would it be, right? Like actually Strauss is someone I would really like to meet because he was born in 1864, which was even before Wagner completed like the ring cycles, um, the ring cycle. Um, but then he died in 1949, which is four years after the end of World War II. Absolutely. So that is like, I mean, it's 85 years, which by today's standards is not, not say that old. I mean, people do live to that age. Um, but it's 85 years that spans this very transformative period in the world. Like you go from essentially an analog world to an electric world. Um, you know, suddenly you had two world wars, you had, I you know, nuclear weapons dropped on on Japan. Like, all of these things were unimaginable in 1864, right? So for me, I always felt the thing about Strauss is, like, he saw the world change in ways that actually very few of us will ever really get to experience. Um, and so for me, that fascination has always been um, something that I would want to like unpack with him like talk to him like like you know how like how did you feel like seeing this world change and i think like that is also very present in his mu music because he wrote these um you know two extremely avant-garde operas at the beginning of the 20th century right. uh, Zalome and Electra which almost take you to the point of where the modernist period starts and then suddenly just retreated into this world of kind of nostalgic yeah, right. kind of neo-romanticism um, so I, I always find that his music is just so, it's so, um, it, it's like a chameleon. Like it just, it just shifts so quickly because like the world changes and then he changes and, and, and the music reflects that, you know? Um, but, and, and yeah, and I, I think the four last songs in particular are just these, these incredible sort of, um, sort of. Um, um, there's this incredible homage to life you know right. and a life sort of a life not a life unfulfilled but a life well lived mm -hmm. you know because I think a lot of time with artists like they spend a lot of time talking about that which is unrequited or that which is unfulfilled but in, in Strauss's case it kind of everything is fulfilled at the end like it's time and like he resigns himself to to death right. you know which is something quite uh, quite counterintuitive to what you would think you know an artistic process might be because it's always about trying to trying to pinpoint that which is like unattainable right right it's funny because talking about Strauss and what is the artist's life right because he didn't die as a struggling musician and most most other composers um, they you know like Mozart died a, a pauper unfortunately despite his you know many um, um, successes and uh, even like Berg, whose other whose works are on this program, like he died of a, a bee sting infection when he was, I think, barely not even forty yet. You know, so again, like this this life that just ended and right. without with all of this music, you know, incomplete. And even his last opera, Lulu, was left un you know incomplete at the time of his death. So it's like you hear all these stories, right, of these composers who just who died at a very young age, right. died with all of this music left unfinished. Um, whereas with Strauss, it's like it's like the complete opposite, you know. Yeah. <laughs> he has lived a fulfilling life. Yeah, I mean, it's literally called the four last songs because they were the last things he wrote, and like that was the end. Right, you know? absolutely. <laughs> um, so yeah, I've always found him a very interesting character in sort of the history of of sort of Western art music for 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 this reason. 
Um, but yeah, the other composer whom we sort of Strauss's comp- counterpart and we we talk about a lot is is Mahler, right? Who also had the same issue, right? Died of a heart heart attack. Yeah. Um, relatively young for for the time. Again, left a bunch of works unfinished. Um, and didn't even get to hear some of the works that he had completed. Um, and and I don't know how do you feel like the difference between these two, these two composers. I mean, like during the pandemic, I found the Mahler symphonies to be this very, um comforting uh like sort of pieces that I went to like they somehow offered a lot of um solace in in sort of the chaos sort of the the mental chaos of like shifting into this pandemic mode. wow yeah I found the two pieces in the pandemic that I listened to the most were Mahler's uh, Das Lied von der Erde the songs of the earth um the song of the earth and Verdi's Requiem, funnily enough, mm. which is also actually one of my sort of absolutely like favorite favorite pieces of music. Yeah. <laughs> which are, I mean, they're funny enough both concerned with death, which, you know, is not, not, was not something that was very sort of <laughs> close to me during the pandemic time either, but somehow it just seemed to resonate with the, with the sort of <laughs> the science of the times, I guess. <laughs> well, <sighs> Mahler and Strauss, I mean, they are polar opposites in many ways, right? But they were also so similar, both were conductors, composers, both, you know, um, were good friends and, and they gave criticisms of each other's music. Um, I mean, with with it's funny because I, I used to listen to a lot of Mahler when I was younger. It was like kind of the, you know, the emo days where you, you put on the Mahler recording and you're like, oh, this is, this is, you know, earth shattering and, um, and and for me, Mahler, um, in some ways, you, you really require, as a conductor, you, you really require some level of uh, split personality or also kind of a megalomaniac to really bring out these kind of um, uh, polarities in the music, you know, of extreme happiness or extreme anger and extreme sadness. And, and that's... That's something that somehow this past few years I haven't been been so in touch with, um, and on the flip side, like Strauss has this certain sense of not recognition, but just just accepting this is this is this is the life. Um, I mean, that, that's not to say. I mean, I love Mahler's music, and I did my uh my my, my doctoral paper on Mahler's tenth symphony. So you mentioned a couple of pieces un, unfinished. The tenth symphony was was left unfinished. Um, the piano score was all fully written out, but the orchestral score was not done yet. Only the first movement and bits of the third movement survived. Um, with Mahler, especially in the tenth symphony, it was it was quite heartbreaking. At the last page in the manuscript, he he writes um. To live for you, to die for you, Alma, and which is his wife, uh, Alma Mahler, and um, and there was this extreme heartbreak. You know, he he has gone through a lot emotionally, and and somehow maybe these days, like like a touch of his music is nice. <laughs> I don't want to be brought on a music uh, like a emotional roller coaster, um, especially with my kid running around. I'm like, okay, this is a lot to handle, <laughs> and um. Uh, I, Verdi is is. It, I I wish I've done more Italian Italian stuff. Uh, Verdi and and Puccini. I remember speaking to another friend. You know, if if I were to only conduct La Boheme for the rest of my life, I, I would be happy. <laughs> that's that's totally fine. It's it's such gorgeous music, and um, 
uh, I mean, I I think one one thing about me is that I have I like so many different things. Um, you know, when it's a very difficult question, if somebody asks me who, what composer would you like to have lunch with, I don't know. I really love all of them, and and in some ways, you know, obviously most of them are dead. Um, at least you know in this standard repertoire that that I do, and there's a whole other uh, avenue of contemporary music that I love as well. But I, I always treat each composer as a friend with, um, as if he was a living person. So, for example, the music of Schumann, I always think of Schumann as um, as this kind of uh, lovesick friend who is imperfect and he's just so messy and he's just just everywhere. You know, he just can't get his life straight. But such a dear friend. He's so sensitive. It's so poetic. And I feel the same thing also with Mahler um, and with Strauss. Um, I, I almost treat them as, as, as living people because that gives me kind of a, a very um, intuitive perception of their music. And... Um, so each composer or you know each piece has a different meaning to me um mozart which we we heard a lot especially in singapore the past few years uh, obviously you know can be overplayed sometimes but the music of mozart has this certain level of um purity of of just bliss and uh, and something that as if it was divine i have a very interesting story i remember i was um i was in Bruno, in, in Czech Republic, uh, I was assisting my my then my uh, boss at, at Poland. He was conducting the orchestra there, and so on the program was um, Mozart's Thirty Five Hafner Symphony. So I remember meeting him. Um, this was in November twenty seventeen. It was one of the day of the rehearsal. Uh, the previous night, it was announced that Trump won the election. And so we met the next morning for a rehearsal and I looked at my, my then boss and he looked at me and I'm like, oh my God, this is happening. Like, this is, this is real. <sighs> this is going to be tough times for, um, yeah, the very interesting times. Um, and, and, you know, there was, it was obviously a heavy cloud, you know, uh, hovering around everybody. But in the rehearsal where we played the second movement of uh, Mozart's Hafner, it, it was such bliss and it was such beauty and and you know it purified our minds in some ways you know we were just there at the moment and enjoying the beauty and enjoying that and it was very special to me then i started to realize that you know a, a lot of composers um they all have something special to bring and to to make me choose which is my favorite it's it's very very difficult but you when you start to appreciate all the little points about about that with Mahler, you're on the emotional roller coaster you 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 you, uh, you saw the the greatest heights and then you you plumb into the the deepest oceans, but you you come out you know transformed. Uh, with Strauss, you it's always an enriching experience. You you always come out smiling secretly because it's such uh, gorgeous and 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 um, glorious music. And um, so maybe I'll end off by asking you, what are some of like the um, your dream pieces to conduct? Wow. When I was in Poland, I was actually introduced to the music of uh, Karol Szymanowski um, because that was a composer that they did quite a bit there. And it was just, it was just a, a, a big revelation for me. Like I never knew anything about Szymanowski. We did the first violin concerto uh, when I was in school in Eastman 
And at that point, it was like, oh, this is a cool piece. But when I actually went to Poland and started to hear a lot more Szymanowski, it was one of those composers that, that just struck me. I mean, to me, he was like a, like a combination of both Strauss and Ravel. He's like Ravel, but sexier. Like the, the harmonies he used and the orchestration, it was just fantastic. Um, so, uh, Szymanowski was always on my mind. You know, um, his uh, third symphony, his fourth symphony, um, this King uh, Roger. And, um, like I said, I have so many, <laughs> I have such a diverse taste, and there's a lot of contemporary music that I would love to do someday. Um, but as I mentioned, you know, if I were just to do La Boheme for the rest of my life, <laughs> I would still be very, very happy. <laughs> well, Boon, on that note, I just wanted to say thank you so much for joining us. Um, and to those of you listening, please do follow the Wayfarer Sinfonietta on Instagram and Facebook for more information on their upcoming shows. Thank you very much, Rita. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Copy and Song. To find out more about this and other episodes, please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Opera People. Copy and Song is written and created by The Opera People and is produced by Mailbox Live under the support of Bridge, an initiative by Creative Set Work and Blue3 Asia. Narrated by Sridharmani and featuring guests, conductor Lian Bunhua. Direction and sound design by Raven Lim. Production assistance by Lo Yen Ling with special thanks to audio partners, Audio Technica and City Music. 